Chocula Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this week's episode, how to drive the Harewood Hill Climb with the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Day coming up in August. JECpodcast.com Hello, welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you on episode 57 after Freedom Day here in the UK. Well, in England at least, restrictions have been lifted, which means our car shows, our normal club activities have got back underway in earnest. And you can see what your local region of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club is up to, is doing, and all of the events that you can attend via the web pages at www.jec.org.uk forward slash events, or just click on the events button from the menu. You can see all of the many activities we can get back out and enjoy now in our Jaguars. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it? And as I stood on the stage at the Summer Jaguar Festival just a few weeks ago, it was fantastic to not only be back doing what I enjoyed doing, but back seeing everyone else enjoying days out with the cars that we love as well. So let's hope we don't go backwards from this point. Let's enjoy it while we've got it. Remember the days when we didn't have it and cherish the days when we do have it even more. Those events pages, jc.org.uk forward slash events for all of the stuff that you can get involved with with the biggest Jaguar club in the world. And talking of events, of course, another reminder that we have the big Harewood Hill Climb weekend just a month away now. It is a day that you can turn into a weekend. We've got the track booked for Saturday the 21st of August. You can either book yourself some runs up the hill, high-speed runs, not against the clock, but as fast as you'd like to drive, or you can just come along and watch other people do it. It is a stunning location, beautiful views, amazing area, lovely surroundings. Come and have a fantastic day with all of the rest of the Jaguar family, basically, is the best thing to do. Uh, You can get all of the details, again, on the events pages at jc.org.uk. And for those of you who fancy knowing a little bit more about Harewood Hill Climb, and especially for those of you who want to know how to get the perfect run up the hill ready for when you book your session... I've got Jim Johnson coming up later on on this episode. He was at the very first Harewood Hill Climb back in the 60s. He's raced it ever since. He's a championship hill climber and he's here to tell us how to do it. That's all on the way very, very shortly. A reminder also that if you're into track days, we've got one coming up. Our annual visit to Castle Coombe will take place on the 5th of October 2021. A track day and car meet down there at Castle Coombe. Another great day and a great opportunity to get out and use your Jaguars. But before then, of course, it's Salon Privé at Blenheim Palace. And we have a Jaguar Enthusiast Club special club area. If you want to join in with the club paddock, you can get your tickets very easily. The links are available from Friday Spotlight. Tickets are priced at £37.50 a person, but there's only 150 spots available. So book now, don't miss out. It's a very, very unique opportunity and one that you will only get as a part of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, as a member. So uh, have a look at that. You can go on the Salon Privé website or you can get the links from jc.org.uk as well. Now, no Richard West this week. He's having some time off. I'd like to say he's on holiday. He's working, actually. He's down in southwest of England. He's popped into the offices at Bristol. He's busy boy this week. So he will be back next week on the podcast with another Hall of Fame But for now, let's get ready to go to Harewood Hill Climb in Yorkshire. 
You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, of course, just over a month from when I'm recording this podcast, the Jaguar Enthusiast Club are taking over the legendary Harewood Hill Climb in Yorkshire for a day of fun with your Jaguars. And I thought ahead of that event, it'd be quite a good idea to firstly get an idea of how to approach driving the Harewood course, but also find out a little bit more about its history and why the place is so special. And someone who knows all about the history of Harewood, he is part of that history, in fact, is Jim Johnson. He joins me on the podcast now. Hiya, Jim. Hi, Wayne. How does it feel to be a part of history, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I suppose, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's quite something to have been involved with, with a thing like Howard Hillcombe right from the start. I mean, I wasn't involved in the um, construction and acquisition of the hill, but uh, I was at the first event on the 16th of September 1962. Incredible. You were obviously a very, very young man back then. Yeah, well, I, I was 22 then. <laughs> <laughs> to be exact, yeah, competing in my frog-eyed sprite. How does a 22-year-old in 1962, Jim, get into motorsport? How did it begin for you? Well, I suppose going right back to childhood, father was an engineer and always very interested in cars. And he usually had something interesting and he used to do quite a bit of work on it himself, uh, on the car himself. And in fact, um, he um, eventually, because it's all, a lot of nostalgia, isn't there, with these cars? And... He was, in his youth or younger years, a very great fan of, of Bentleys in the 1920s and 30s. And he finally uh, got his wish and bought himself a three-litre Bentley in 1927. And he had a lot of work done by a professional restorer, but he also did quite a lot of it himself. And I uh, can remember happy days when he would say, Oh, I'll take some of your pals up in the Yorkshire Dales and have a day out in it. And we used to pile six of us in it. It was, it was a long wheelbase one. You could walk about in the back. And uh, we used to go hurtling around the Dales, stopping for the odd pint, as you do. And we used to have some fantastic time in it. So uh, one thing led to another. And uh, I've always I've inherited his, his fascination with cars. And I used to tinker about with whatever it was uh, that was in the garage. And... I came home from school one day at the age of 15 and there was a pile of what I can only describe as wreckage on the drive. And I went in and said to mother, what, what, what on earth is that out there? Said, well, you'll have to wait for your father to come home. He'll tell you all about it. So he arrived home about seven o'clock and said, uh, have you seen it then? I said, yeah, what is it? <laughs> well, he said, it's the, rem it's the remains of a Ford 8 van, vintage 1936. He said, I bought it for about three quid <laughs> and had it delivered. He said, I said, oh, he said, your job is to make it go. So that was being thrown in at the deep end. So um, managed to get the bodywork off it and that was taken away to some scrap heap somewhere. And I was left with a chassis, a rolling chassis. And of course, the engine didn't fire. It was absolutely shattered. So I had to take the engine to bits. Uh, and rebuild that uh, with some help from father and other people who gave me advice on that particular type of engine. And to a long story short, I got it running and I put some floorboards on the chassis and a seat on it. And um, father's works was um, 
adjacent to an old pit, an old coal mine. And there were lots of slag heaps there. And I used to go out there at every opportunity, <laughs> driving this thing up and down slag heaps and having a whale of a time. And of course, if it broke down, I had to fix it. So that that was what taught me a great deal about uh, cars and engines. And, and it, it just went on from there. And I was, uh, what, later on, I was be about, what well, would I be then, about 18. Um, he took me into Leeds one day. And uh, we stopped outside. Where are we going? He said, you'll see when we get there. And we stopped outside this place with great big double doors. I seem to remember it was under some railway arches. And we went inside. And there inside was a what had been a beautiful Talbot four-seater drophead tourer. But it had had a, mon- a monumental accident. Um, and uh, apparently a motorbike had hit it head on. Uh, and it had even bent the chassis. So I said, we're going to take this home and you're going to see if we can get that going. So that came home. The chassis was so badly bent that it had to go back to roots. And would you believe this would be 1958? They still had the chassis jigs for this 1936 37 car. And it came back with a straightened chassis and we put a Rochdale fiberglass body on it and got that going. Well, to call it asthmatic is a, a compliment. It was so slow, it was unbelievable. And uh, I did my first Burton Sprint in Leeds, organised by BARC Yorkshire, in that. Um, and um, first outing, I caught the fiberglass rear wing on a straw bale and ripped the back end of the body off. So that was a good start. <laughs> <laughs> you've really had to work for every car you've had up to this point, haven't you? <laughs> Yeah, you do, and, and it was uh, it was a good learning curve. All that, and eventually, I mean, we couldn't stop the thing overheating, um, and uh, eventually, I uh, I was again very fortunate. I was given a, an Austin Ely Frog Eye Sprite for my nineteenth birthday, and I started competing in that bog standard. And of course, I was nowhere. I went to the first meeting again at Burton Sprint, and. Uh, I looked at all these other sprites in the class. They'd ruined the cars away and they'd taken the bumpers off. They'd taken the seat out. They'd, they'd absolutely stripped them down and absolutely ruined the car, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's where the learning process began, really. And uh, I, I went on all that season. That would be 1959. I did all that season in bog standard form and usually came last in the class. Um uh, the following season, some sort of minor modifications were done, like bigger carburettors and, and uh, an exhaust system and that sort of thing. And, and then the, a very near neighbour of ours was a chap called Ken Lee, who was the uh, Yorkshire distributor for Speedwell tuning parts. Mm-hmm. And he also drove works BMC cars. He drove in the Monty and O'Reilly 1.5 and all sorts of other things like that. He was really into rallying in a big way, and he went into speed events as well. And so in 1961, the car, I, I'd been saving everything I could while I was working, and it went to uh, to him, and he fitted, he made it up to what they called then the Clubman, uh, was it a Clubman 90 engine, and it produced 90 brake horsepower, a bit of a jump from its original 42. And... Uh, it had uh, two ML GP carburettors and a different camshaft head, head work and that sort of thing. And that was very lively. That, that was a good step up. 
But the following season, Speedwell uh, approached me uh, via Ken and said, look, we're developing a new engine. Uh, would any of your boys be interested? So myself and Peter Smith, a rhubarb farmer at the time, who had a, he had a frog eye sprite. Um, and we were sort of keen rivals. Um, and they, they said, I said, well, what are you doing? And they said, well, we've got a, a design for an aluminium alloy head with uh, four inlet ports. And uh, we think we can get a lot of usable power out of it. So they took my engine and actually used it on the dyno to develop this engine. Standard form, it has Siamese inlet port, two Siamese inlet ports. Yeah. And the centre exhaust port is also Siamese. The numbers two and three cylinders use the same port. Yeah. So what they did, they left the exhaust as it was in their design, but they, they made the cylinder head very deep, and it had four extremely narrow and extremely tall inlet ports when they had to make them like that to thread them between the push rods. It was an amazing piece of work. And that ran on four one-inch Amal GP carburettors. And it produced, in 1962, 109 brake horsepower from 998cc, which was absolutely phenomenal in those days. Yeah. Uh, 100 bhp per litre, that was quite something. And... uh, it had a, a fabulous torque spread as well, so it was superb for hill climbing and circuit racing. I did a lot of circuit racing in those days. And um, it was a phenomenal thing. It was quite revolutionary in some ways because apparently uh, in motorcycle racing, they had problems with these amals. With going around the corner, banking very sharply like motorbikes do, the float would jam in the float chamber. And depending on what position it was in when you entered the bend, you either got no petrol or far too much. <laughs> and so, so they discarded the floats, put an overflow pipe on each float chamber, and fed them down to a, a weir pump situated in the passenger footwell. So there was no uh, needle valve either, so the petrol was just flowing at a hell of a rate. Uh, and, and my God, it worked. Uh, it needed a huge SU uh, equivalent to the one fitted to uh, some very big motor cars to keep it going. But it was a, a phenomenal car. It has a lightweight fiberglass bonnet on it. But, uh, yeah, it, it was an amazing car, very successful. Amazing. Yeah, and, of course, Speedwell, the, the people behind Speedwell were legends in their own right. That innovation had come from, well, the name Speedwell was invented by John Sprinzel at Goodwood, wasn't it, when he had to think of some clever reasons to why he'd won the race as an outsider. And he, he told the journalist, our Speedwell engineer, and that's who it is, and then sort of formed the company afterwards. Actually, he was very involved in the, in the beginning, but by the time I was involved with Speedwell, he'd gone his own way. Uh, and they got a team of other people there. But Graham Hill had bought into the company, yeah. and I actually met him once at Speedwell when I went down. And because uh, he was quite a character, he used to drive their A35 in saloon car racing, the Speedwell A35, Austin A35. Uh, and he couldn't make that go a bit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it was quite something. But they did a, a, a super. Um, engineer called I think it's Dave Jones who developed this cylinder head and and uh, worked the engine into what it became. It was fantastic. Were well, you aware then that it was a golden era for motorsport? Did you feel a part of it in club racing? I don't think I did really. It was just it was just motorsport, and 
Yes, I always got, it, got excited about events, and uh, I mean, I would go, the local circuit to me in Yorkshire was Ruffler Fairfield, and their events were run by the BRSCC, and there'd be three meetings a year, sort of Easter, Whitson, and August Bank Holiday. I used to do all those in the Sprite. Um, the problem in those days was they just lumped uh, all sports cars together, regardless of what they were. So I'd be in the class for sports cars up to, I think it was 1,000 cc, and I'd be sitting beside Lotus 7s, U2s, Malocs, all this sort of thing, which weighed nothing, <laughs> and had probably similar power out to, output to me, perhaps some of them with Cosworth 1,000 cc engines in them. And, of course, you'd go off the line, and they disappeared into the distance. Mm. And it used to take me eight laps to catch them, because my, actually my lap times were quicker than theirs, uh, and I could usually put the car on the front row in, in practice, but uh, their acceleration was so phenomenal that it, it, I relied on the, the speed around the twisty bits to catch them up, which I usually did after about eight laps. And sometimes I could get past them the third place, sometimes I couldn't. But uh, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. It was, it was marvellous. Uh, <laughs> uh, other, other clubs raced you with similar cars, but... Uh, the nearest, it sobs low, isn't it? The one closest to me I had the most difficult battle. <laughs> but it, it taught me an awful lot. Yeah. Well, of course, Harewood Hill Climb would have been your local venue, and it was, as yeah, you say, one was. that started in uh, September 1962, Sunday the 16th. What are your memories of that very first day, that very first meeting? Um, well, we were all so excited. I mean, there'd been so much pressure for someone to find and come up with a hill climb course in Yorkshire. Uh, we used to have to travel uh, all over the place to find hill climbs and and, uh, and even sprints. And uh, sprints were usually on disused airfields, and the surface always left a lot to be desired. But uh, yeah, it, there was just a huge air of excitement among everybody about this this new event. And uh, I, know, I can't remember who it was. I did not see the. I can't remember the name of the RAC steward now. It was the RAC in those days, not the MSUK. And and he pronounced that this could become one of the events in the country, having having seen the course. Because, as you'll be aware, the view from the top is like no other course. You can see the whole course from the top of the hill. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, it was realised, uh, we began to get to realise that we had to get serious, because uh, shortly after that, went on the committee, and uh, the work that was done, and, the you know, the, it was just amazing to, to get it done. And, of course, the first event was on a very temporary surface. It was done by a, uh, a bunch of navvies who were engaged in a pub in Leeds oh, really? <laughs> for pound notes and, and tarmac that was, you know, it wasn't quite, well, this lot's left over from from somebody's drive, sir, but it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> far off. That. It wasn't a lot better than Oak Dirt Road. In fact, it broke up so badly. We had to resurface it again before the next meeting the following season. And that was that was done a, a lot more professionally, but when you know we were short of money and uh, people got their coats off and picked up shovels and, and did all sorts of things to make it happen. Mm. Um, and we were fortunate in the layout of the hill in that on the committee was a, a chap called Bill Varley, who was a, um, a West Riding County Council highways engineer, and he a lot of his expertise and knowledge went into designing and, and building the course. So we were very fortunate there. But, of course, the whole thing comes down eventually to Arnold Burton um, 
who was a keen motor racing or motorsport enthusiast, uh, and he got this working dairy farm, and, and he sort of he spotted that there's a possibility here, and he approached the Yorkshire Centre and said, "You'd better come and have a look at this," and <laughs> it went from there. Wow, that's that's an interesting one because you know often it is motorsport clubs and associations begging landowners for the permission to run events yeah. on their land. This way, yeah. it was the other way around because Arnold Burton was a fan and he wanted people to come to his land, and that's yes, that's indeed. a rarity, isn't it? Really, it is. It is, and it, and he competed on occasion as well. So it was it was very good. It was excellent. The whole atmosphere around it, and of course, years later, when Arnold, on the part of the deal was that the BARC Yorkshire would have first uh, first refusal on buying it if the day came when he wanted to dispose of it. Well, the day eventually did come, and then there was a sort of a huge effort to to raise funds to to buy it. Um, there were two major uh, investors. And the rest was done by members who tipped up a minimum of £100, which bought them 100 shares. Um, and so many of them did it that we got the money and bought it. It was just it was incredible, really. Amazing. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And of course, the farm remains. And in fact, the track, as people will see when they come on the Jaguar yeah. Enthusiast Day, the track still goes right through the main courtyard of the farm and out the other side. Yeah. And once it upon does. a time, you had to stop the racing to allow the milk truck to come up and down, didn't you? Yes. Well, yeah, when we first started, because it was a working dairy farm and uh, the milk tanker would arrive about, I don't know, a couple of half past two or three o'clock in the afternoon and we had to stop everything because the only way into the farm itself was down the track. So he went down, and then we'd start again. And when he was ready to come out, we had to stop again to let him leave. <laughs> so again, you know, all part of the sort of uh, early pioneering atmosphere of the site, really. Yeah, amazing. And obviously, as I say, the farm's still there. Is it still lived in? Is it still part of the, the estate, if you like? A new company was formed to buy the property called Howard Hill Limited, who you will have uh, made the arrangements with for your JEC day. And, and uh, they own the whole site, including the farmhouse and the buildings. And the farmhouse is, has, a, has a tenant in it. It's, it's let to a tenant who has nothing to do with motorsport, but he's, he's quite a medium and he really enjoys hill climb days. And they can have a grandstand seat that nobody else has got watching cars hurtle past their house. Well, it's yeah. a stunning location, isn't it? You're there in the Valley of the Wharf. Uh, the river sort of runs down in the valley. You can see right across the valley from where Hayward Hill Climb is and see for miles in all direct. Well, it was a stepping stone for you, really, wasn't it? Because after racing your Sprite, you went on to get into championships and you travelled hill climbs all up and down the country, didn't you? Including the very last run up at Boness that I've interviewed you about before, the uh, oldest motorsport venue in Scotland. And it started to become a little bit of a career for you through the 60s in some ways. Well, yes, uh, uh, you could find yourself something every weekend if you were so minded. But, uh, of course, uh, family was around then and, and uh, you, you know, you have to be really sensible about it. But yes, I was in single seaters uh, from well, the first single seater was 1964. Um, and I bought a Lotus 18 for uh, X Formula Junior car um, and he uh, climbed that. And eventually um, I was watching a chap called Peter Meldrum 
who originally lived in London but moved out to Jersey, and he converted a Lotus 22 with a 1500 Ford engine in it by fitting a, a, an Allard conversion which consisted of an, an enormous Shorrock supercharger sitting on top of the engine, the, the most mammoth carburetor you've ever seen, running on methanol. And he was, at that time, he was the king of Harewood. No, no one could beat him. And uh, I looked at this thing and thought, hang on a minute, if that works on a 1500cc engine, why shouldn't it work on a 1000cc engine or an 1100cc engine as mine was? So I went to a very well-known tuner in, in, uh, in Yorkshire, Bill Crossland, um, and uh, asked him about it. He said, yeah, there's no reason why that shouldn't work. Um, <clears throat> so he ordered the stuff up from Allard, and when it all arrived, uh, he looked at the carburetor, which was, uh, was a two or a two and a half inch SU with two float chambers. <laughs> it was massive. And uh, he rang Alan Allard up and said, he sent this carburetor. He said, but it's got a bog standard needle and jet in it. What do we do with that? Where, where are the proper... Oh, he said, Allard's reply was, get the biggest drill you can through the jet without crashing through the walls and then take your needle and machine it so by the time the dash box halfway up, there's nothing in the way of the jet. <laughs> Bill, being an ex-speedway rider, was uh, knew all about methanol because he used to ride... Uh, speedway bikes with 500cc jack engines and of course they all ran on methanol in those days and Bill knew very well that if you uh, run a, a, an engine on methanol on the weak side of the mixture you very quickly melted the aluminium pistons so, and uh, he sorted this engine out beautifully and if you stood behind it in the paddock when it was ticking over you got splashed with methanol <laughs> <laughs> I transferred that into a Brabham BT-15 for 1968 and uh, the only place I was beaten that year was at uh, Faulty Will where I was put up a class I was put because of the blower they put me up into the 1600 class and I think I came third or fourth in class but interestingly I was sixth FTD overall inside the old hill record wow <laughs> On a three-mile course in an 1,100-blown car, which was running out of gears for the last mile, I had to keep backing up and putting my foot down again. <laughs> <laughs> it was very much a sort of do-it-yourself culture, wasn't it? Yeah, fiddle about and see if it works and try it. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah. Bill Crossan was an absolute wizard. In fact, it's his son, Max Crossan, who was very heavily involved in the organisation of the Wolfstones Hill Climb at Home Firth. Right. The first one, first one of which was held a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. It's yeah. interesting to see the difference between that and how the uh, hill climb championship is run these days. You know, you've got yeah. some really serious guys there that put some serious money into those cars, and oh, it's on yeah, a par yeah. with a sort of Formula Ford, Formula Three car now, isn't it? Oh, it's just, it's just incredible. I mean, when you the power that they've got. I mean, the the some of the ones that have quoted it, they've got. 750 horsepower in something weighing about what what did I hear that Sean Gould's, Gould weighed? Uh, I can't remember now. Was it about 400 kilos or less? Probably very light. Yeah, very light. 750 horsepower. Yeah. It's just incredible. They're doing 100 over 150 through the finish at Shelsley Walsh. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and of course, at Harewood. Uh, it does hold the accolade of being one of the longest hill climb tracks yeah. in the UK as well. So there's plenty yeah. of opportunity to sort of win or lose it, isn't it, as well? It, it is quite technical from that point of view. 
Yeah, the the uh, original course. I remember Chris Kramer was there one meeting when he was running. He was running in the championship. It was actually a non-championship meeting, but he. I would have had a BT30 Brabham with an FBA engineer then, and they watched me come up the hill apparently, and he came over to me and said, in his sort of German uh, accent, I've been watching you, he said, you are bullying that car up here, I think you are right, I have to get hold of it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the nature of the original course, but when the, the new one was introduced, that was a really technical bit, uh, especially the bit going down to and getting through the S's. And I could not, for the life of me, get the hang of that when I first went back to the TR6. And uh, I was locking a, a, a right front wheel almost every time. I was almost disappearing into the shrubbery, but didn't. And I could not get it right. So I enrolled on the Howard Drivers Academy for a day. And what, what a benefit that was. It was fantastic. Really well run. And, and I learned how to approach and get around the S's quickly. Well, I was going to um, ask yeah. you about this because that is one of the most challenging corners, I think, on any hill climb yeah. track in the UK. Yeah. And it's one that I've yeah. struggled with too. So for all the listeners that are now booking away and uh, getting their tickets ready for driving the Harewood Hill Climb, let's give them a guided tour to how they take a, a good lap of Harewood. So we'll start at the very beginning. Of course, you come down off the hill and you come into the entry road. So everyone's the same. You go to the start line with tyres at ambient temperature and start at Harewood is, is on the level so you, you're on a concrete pad and when you get the green light you go in your own time you're lined up all the cars now have a um, a strut on the front which has to be certain dimensions and fixed to a certain position on the car that interrupts the timing beam at the start and finish so you're lined up with that against the light beam uh, and then it's when the green light comes on you go in your own time um, and obviously the timekeepers allow the car in front of you to get at least a third of the way up the hill. Uh, usually they have three cars on the course at once. Um, until they get to the very quick ones, then it's down to two. But uh, you, you leave the line a, a short straight to the first corner. Uh, in my case, I'm in second gear when I get there. Uh, and that corner can be taken more quickly than it seems. Uh, there's no camber on it. Uh, the temptation with it is to enter it too early. You have to steel yourself to stay out a bit and take the apex as late as possible. Then it's downhill. And in my case, it's from second to third and foot to the floor. Um, and I reckon I must be doing 65, 70 when I get to the bottom of there. Um, and uh, then the difficulty then is to avoid locking in, in my case, the right front wheel up. And when I was on this course, I... Uh, I went around with the instructor and I took my road going TR because there wasn't a seat in the uh, passenger seat in the competition one. So I took the other one. He's sitting next to me and down the hill we go. And he said, no, you've got that wrong. I said, well, what's wrong with that? He said, just next time we come down, just look at the camber on the road as you're approaching the entry to the S's. He said, it's low on the left. So if you're on the left, which is the natural line to take if you're entering a right-hand bend, so you're using all the road, right? Um, he said, look at the camber. Your right-hand wheels have got much less weight on them than the left-hand ones. So if you're braking hard there, you're going to lock the wheels up on the right-hand side. And I've watched you, he said, I've watched you in, in events, and that's exactly what you're doing. And you can see lots of black lines on the road where lots of people have done the same mm, thing. Yeah. So I so said, what, what's the trick then? He said, well, 
you keep yourself right over to the right-hand side of the road until you've got your major braking done. Then you swing left and then right into the into the S-bend. And he said, I said, well, what do you reckon is the braking point? Well, it's obviously different with every car, but he said, I reckon you should be waiting until that little yellow timing box. There's a sector timing light just before you get to the S. He said, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I've done it several times and I've got around that corner by the skin of my teeth, but that that was the key to getting into the S's. And sometimes I forget because it's natural to go to the left. So you have to make yourself stay on the right. And uh, yeah, and then he taught me a line through the S's, which is, again, when you look at it, it's logical. You make them best use of the full width of the road. There's nothing really tricky about it. You just got to pick your points out. Uh, and uh, you come out of there into Chippies, which is by the old start, which is a long right-hander with high ground on the inside. So it's in it, to some extent it's blind. Um, but that's an, an, un, uh, an understeer-inducing bend. That you need a lot of power under your, under your right foot to make the back come round. Um, and lots of tire wheel when I go around there, but that that's a tight one. And then it's up a, a sharp rise to the what used to be the first corner. Um, and uh, in a single seater, you can't see where the road goes on that. So you have to know what you're doing. Now, again, there's quite a lot of black lines going straight on into the field without taking a bend. Um, so that's a sharp left-hander. Then it's on the level then for about oh, is it 100 yards probably about that, to um, Country Corner. Uh, that has a slight adverse camber, quite sharp. It's the, the whole thing, once you've left the straight and gone to the next straight, it's 90 degrees. Um, and uh, that's uh, then you've got a, a straight up to the farmyard. You go through, uh, there used to be a, a five-bar gate and a gatepost there, but fortunately they've taken that away. And... Um, there's a, there's a rumble strip on the left-hand side as you enter it. It's a slight left-hand bend, and there's a rumble strip, which I always go over. Um, and then a really tight, more than 90, orchard bend, um, which is, uh, for me, it's a second gear just. It's almost needing first, per, first depending on which diff I've got. It's always a second gear, but then it's flat through the farmyard, and the gear change up through there into third, and then into Farmhouse Bend, which is a long, long sweeping left-hander where the camber changes uh, probably twice. And that takes you onto the Quarry Strait, uh, so-called because it ends in what's called Quarry Bend for fairly obvious reasons. And that is, an, that is a tricky one. Um, I used to say, when somebody once asked me uh, with the old course, what, what do you think of the the key parts of the old course the first bend because you can't see it and the last one because it's it's a so-and-so i actually learned by accident uh when i had the uh supercharged little grabber uh in, i think in 1968 uh the best way around there and i came up the straight and i saw this shiny mark on the course and it was right where my outside wheels were going my left hand wheels down the right hand bend of Oh my God, that's oil, and it was, and the car just felt as though it was floating when it got onto that, and I don't do anything. I don't touch anything. <laughs> <laughs> the brakes, the throttle, the steering. I just let the car sort itself out, and when I came off it, it had slid round enough 
so that I was pointing over the finish line, I just flattened the accelerator, and that was a new glass record. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the answer so, then. Look for the oil patch on the outside. <laughs> I, I tried to do I, I used to do it deliberately after that by taking my foot off the accelerator too sharply, if you like, and it sort of temporarily locked the back of it. Well, didn't lock them, but slowed them down enough to make the back end let go. And <laughs> but the, nowadays, they're going so fast up there. I mean, the, the big single-seaters up that straight are doing 140 miles an hour. Yeah, The acceleration, because the farmhouse bend is quite slow, and to get from there to 140 in, what, less than 100 yards? It's, it's incredible. And they go around on the trailing throttle most of the way. Um, and nobody accelerates over the line these days in, in a car like that. Well, there we are. That is the technique for a good run of Harewood Hill Climb. But can you do it as well as Jim does? You can find out by booking really easily by going to jc.org.uk forward slash events. Uh, click on the Harewood Hill Climb list in there and all of the details for you to book are on there. They're booking batches of runs and then when the time is up for all of those pre-booked runs then extra runs will be available on the day if we've got time for them so uh, you've heard jim talk you around it it's easy isn't it you can do it yourself and take a jaguar around there and have a go and see if you can put into practice everything that jim's taught us and of course jim you you said that you had some time out of racing but you're well and truly back in it now and racing a triumph tr6 in the sprint and hill climb championship now that's right yes i am i've not had a good year this year health-wise but I'm back in it now Wolfstones was my first one back uh, I did the very first Harewood this year in April when uh, I had thermals on under my overalls and I was still frozen stiff, nobody's <laughs> tyres would work so people were going off in all directions <laughs> but it was quite an experience but uh, I'm back now, I've done Wolfstones and I've got some entries in for Harewood uh, for the rest of the season so Hopefully we'll get back there. There's just one thing to sort of say there, you're trying to do the best time. You never, ever do the perfect run. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're striving for. But there's always something you, you realise you could have done better and you keep trying and trying and trying. And that's, what, that's the fascination in it, really. That's the fascination. If you're saying that, Jim, the rest of us have no hope, but we'll do well, our well, best. <laughs> well, that's all, that's all I can do. And, you know, getting on a bit now, so some of these young lads are <laughs> making much needed me. <laughs> you are still out every weekend competing, and not just uh, being part of the also-rans. You are up there and running for the win every single weekend, and I know there are a lot of drivers who have a lot of respect for how you take on the courses, wherever you're racing in the country. It's great that you've been able to come on here and share some of those techniques with us, and uh, we'll try it out with our Jaguars around Harewood Hill Climb on the 21st of August 2021. Thanks very much, Wayne, and I uh, hope you, all your JC members have a really enjoyable and safe day out. Jim Johnson, thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary, sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. So moving on from the great results up at Castle Coon, we're trying to keep the momentum going here. We're midway through progress in preparing the XJR6. 
ready for the next round up at Brands Hatch. So um, we've been we've had the car back in a workshop since um, Castle Coombe. We've given the vehicle a full check over, um, and there is a couple of things that are apparent that we're going to need to do the car ready for Brands. Nothing too serious. Um, one of the things um, that we do quite regularly once we've raced is, as I've always gone on about, we we spend a lot of time going through the race and checking all the data and seeing all the temperatures now one of the things that's standing out the most is that the actual gearbox temperatures are, are still quite high we've talked about this in the past that we've had gearbox issues so this is um, just a small modification that we're going to try and carry out to improve this so we're going to we're going to just add a gearbox cooler to see if we can reduce these gearbox temperatures the gearbox is working absolutely fine and I'm not actually getting any issues um, this is just a preventative measure so we're going to move an oil cooler to the rear of the car run some lines possibly a pump just to try and uh, reduce those temperatures and We'll be able to test it and monitor it up a brand so that's just to really stop any further stress on that gearbox as i said we're running we're doing something this gearbox isn't designed running quite a lot of talk through it um, and that really brings us on to the next problem that we have found on the car so the center prop bearing is showing signs that it's just got a bit of small play in there so same again with this it's just not worth the risk we're trying to keep the the momentum running me and james are now head at, head to head um for the class d championship i think there's only one point in it so brands is going to be the decider on who's then leading i think there's as i said there's one point in it so it's really really close so um the other thing is that brands is a bit of a favorite for for mr ram so he's going to be the one to beat there and also colin has been very competitive there in the past as well so um, that is on their territory really like Castle Coon for me was my local circuit um, these guys have done lots and lots of laps around brands so and it isn't a place that I've done a huge amount of time out I've only ever raced there not really done much testing at brands in the past so it's quite a tight circuit so it's not necessarily suited to the XJR so I'm really really hoping we can have a good result and I just want to make sure we don't have leave anything unturned with this preparation for this one so we're obviously going to um, add that cooler as i said um, we're going to replace the the center prop bearing we'll probably do that next week now um, and also the that we found some play in the rear a-frame bushes so yeah again um, we don't actually solid mount these we run them as polyurethane we use um, what they call the black series bushes um, which is a race uh, polyurethane so that is a type of plastic um, which is pretty much solid but there is still a little bit of compliance in there now what we have found um, when we're running certain items solid mounted is it puts a lot of stress through the chassis on the car so if you can imagine if there's no way of taking any vibration out of that it sends that through the body shell now they are old cars at the end of the day and we have found that it does stress that rear a-frame mounting with it being solid so we prefer to just run the polyurethane and replace them regularly so these are just started to oval so the rear axle is moving ever so slightly so just for the sake of a set of bushes we're just going to replace them as i said i just don't want to leave one thing on this then we're just going to do the normal preparation that we would do before a race so obviously we'll change all the fluids um, gearbox we'll be doing anyway because we're adding that cooler in there and we might also look at changing to a different oil brand just to see um, if we can improve those temperatures by doing that as well so currently we use the standard castrol seems to be the best all-rounder but looking at some data on some oil specs there's a couple of other brands such as motel out there which look like they offer a bit of a higher temperature range so we might even move over to that as well just as another um, bit of a safety margin there we've had very um, quite a few issues with the synchros on gear changes and that's my biggest concern really we just don't want to cause any further issues on that because it's it's so frustrating from a driver's perspective when you're starting to feel a synchro crunch each gear it just slows the whole momentum down of the gear change etc so 
that's pretty much all we're going to be carrying out we scrubbed a set of tires up at castle coombe so i'll be getting those on the car um, and then we'll obviously do the geometry to match now unfortunately we don't have any time to do any testing they were all booked up for the friday i wasn't quick enough on that i should have done it straight away and i just missed out on that so we are going to be straight out in quali um, with no testing so um, like i said I, I have driven um, brands so i'm not too concerned i'm sure we can find time quite quickly the downside is it's looking like it's going to be a mixed grid um, again so the jags will be running with the um, one of the classic touring car races as well so um, it's going to be pretty busy um, brands is on the indie circuit so it is quite short um, so that'll be entertaining so i think we've got to do what we've done in the past get out there quick try and get a lap in within the first three or four laps and hopefully that's enough to secure us a decent position to start in but we'll see we'll see not sure what the weather's doing yet obviously we'll worry about that nearer the time um so we're going to chip our way through all of these preparations for, for next week um and we're there next saturday and sunday so we'll probably head up on the friday um matthew isn't actually racing at brands unfortunately um so he was in the xj40 at castle coombe so it is literally just my car that we're preparing ready for brands um, and the following meeting at Cadwell Matthew will be out in his XJR6 that we've now finally got all the bits for and we're just absolutely full steam ahead to get that ready for him I'm just a bit gutted with the delay on all of the parts uh, for his car which is a bit of a shame we're hoping to test it um, before Cadwell as well so that's still all on the card so yeah lo lots to do um, and we're just trying to keep this momentum going I'm just still over the moon with the results from Castle Coombe just what we needed after the poor result at Donington so when you're on a bit of a high it's nice to keep things moving um, and you just never know with racing it, anything can happen so we just want to make sure this there's absolutely nothing on the car that we don't leave unturned and if we can add some modifications such as this all cooler for the gearbox that's just another added bonus and we can also then look at the data after brands and, and see what difference it's made exactly because we've got some really good information to compare it to so that's the plan i'm really excited for brands um like i said it's um a bit of a longer stretch between the last round so um it'll be good to get back out in the car and hopefully we don't have the kind of temperatures we've been experiencing these last few days because um seeing some of the footage of some of the guys that were racing last weekend it, it, they must have had some pretty serious uh, in-car temperatures so um but yeah we'll see what happens um i'll update you next week with the progress on all the work on the car and fingers crossed for some other great results that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.